Hello, hello, it's Monday. It is the 15th of February in the year 2021. This is Greater Gospel Temple and Inspiration of God Ministries right here on the World Wide Web. And I am so thankful to God for everything that He's done, He's doing, He will do in our lives. And I will do my prayer. I am going to do another part of the heavenlies talking about the battleground because there's so much to cover until the spirit has uh, directed me to go ahead and do different segments because this is really interesting it's really crucial for us today because we are definitely in a war we are definitely and we are on the battleground and we need to know what's happening and how to win the war. And by the grace of God, there's this wonderful book that was given to us with, along with many other books by different people gave us books when the church burned in 1995. And believe it or not, some of the books I just unpacked I think in 2020, 2019, and 2020, people were so generous toward us. And I know I believe in God's timing, and I know that He has timed everything out. And that's why I try and strive to be obedient to Him so that I will move when He says move. And if He says be still, I will be still. But I want to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue. And this book is That None Should Perish. And his uh, the author's name, there's spiritual I, I know he was led by God to write this book Ed Silvoso and uh, I'm going into we were in uh, we're in chapter three and we're talking about the battleground we're talking about the heavenlies so this section I'm going to go into right now is the darkness of the enlightenment and we talked about not knowing and how dangerous it is not to know and that's how satan tricks so many people uh not because of what they know but what they don't know because he's conniving he's treacherous and we also know that he ha does not have permission to defeat us so he has to do all kinds of deceptive things that he does in order to get us to backslide or not accept uh, Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and live a sanctified life. And um, I, I want to go into that, but my prayer is that God gave me weeks ago. Dear Lord, as I stand or sit before you to speak, I pray to you that my soul you will keep. And if I should die before I finish, I pray that any outstanding sins will be forgiven. Amen. You can reach me at 469-629-9543 or ggtchurch66 at yahoo.com or through my other uh, media uh, outlets or uh, what is it, social media. So there are messages you can get to me and other uh, emails. So anyway, whatever avenue you can reach me, all right? 
so we are going right into this section and it's the darkness of the enlightenment another reason we have difficulty understanding the heavenlies as a spirit realm in is the impact the enlightenment of the 18th century has had on the Western world. And I'll repeat that. We're talking about the heavenlies, remember? And we're on the, the battleground and we're in warfare, spiritual warfare, okay? Another reason we have difficulty understanding the heavenlies as a spirit, spirit realm is the impact the enlightenment of the 18th century has had on Western culture. The devastating secular movement removed every reference to the supernatural from the scientific lexicon. The action seemed to be, if you can't prove its existence scientifically, it doesn't exist. So the church in the West was not immune to the onslaught of the Enlightenment, and some of it was incorporated into its theological presuppositions. Now this, in turn, was carried to the four corners of the earth by the Western missionary movement of the 18th through the 20th centuries. So in this context, it is interesting to note that the greatest growth of Christianity in the third world has occurred where the cultural and theological dominance of the church in the West has been replaced by the indigenous church's own cultural and theological initiatives and world view. It is equally interesting that the church in the West has remained suspicious of these indigenous movements and in many cases has rejected the genuineness of the mass conversions on suspicion of religious syncretism. And I want to repeat that part too, okay? So it's equally interesting that the church in the West has remained suspicious of these indigenous movements and in many cases has rejected the genuineness of the mass conversions on suspicion of religious syncretism. Now, however, if we track on a world map the hot spots where the church is growing rapidly today, we will find that in each one of those areas, such as Korea, China, Guatemala, Nigeria, or Argentina, the national churches have an understanding of the heavenlies are the spirit realm quite different than the one historically held by the church in the West. So there are some differences, many differences, and if we are not aware of different cultures and how they believe in different things, we, we really won't get it, okay? We really won't get it. It's because sometimes we can think that we're the only ones that have it when we really are not the ones that have it at all. So we really have to be careful. That's why we must 
we must repent of our sins and accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And then he puts his spirit in us and that spirit will lead and guide us to all truths. So we must be prepared to accept the truth and then relay the truth, okay, to the rest of the world. So now we're going to talk about the GI Bill fallout. Another reason for our difficulties in understanding the spirit world can be connected to the indirect impact of the GI Bill on the church in the United States. The GI Bill was an act of Congress that made federal money available for college education to those who had served in the U.S. Armed Forces. Theological and religious institutions were included as options. The traditional evangelical seminaries and Bible schools had already embraced a theology that excluded several of the more controversial power gifts. Along with this was the view that casting out demons belonged more to the apostolic age or to pioneer missionary ministry among spirit worshipers. In countries with a strong church, demons were not usually in evidence. Thus, the influence of the Enlightenment has already in evidence in their theological presuppositions. Okay? Thus, the influence of the Enlightenment was already in evidence in their theological presuppositions. Now, with the advent of government-financed Christian education under the GI Bill, most Christian theological institutions felt they must, quote, end quote, upgrade their curriculum by bringing in more courses in the social sciences. As a result, the secularizing, you know, I'm doing this thing now, this OCD thing, okay. As a result, the secularizing influences originating out of the Enlightenment made even greater inroads into these Christian training institutions. So it became even harder to understand the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. Thus, thousands of graduates entered our churches and mission fields basically ignorant of the activity of the spirit world on church and in the heavens, my, 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 on earth and in the heavens. Satan gained a decisive advantage in his struggle against the church because of the church's growing ignorance of the spirit world. Besides, how long can a hungry fox and a mother hen and her chicks live together? Like the commando described at the beginning of this chapter, the church especially in the West, has been partially neutralized. In spite of enjoying powerful means of communication, sophisticated teaching tools, political freedom, financial backing, and the largest pool of talent ever assembled, it has failed to reach the world for Christ. Worse yet, in many countries, the church is losing ground with more churches being closed than those 
being planted, my Lord. And at the time this book was written, that was so. And believe it or not, these things are happening today also. Now, like the U.S. Pacific Fleet anchored at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the church in the West today presents too easy a target for Satan. We do not believe we are at war. We do not know where the battleground is located, and in spite of the might of our weapons, they are neither loaded nor aimed at the right target. We are unaware of how vulnerable we are. We are better fitted for a parade than for an amphibious landing, mighty Lord. That's hard, and we need to take heed to this. Okay, now we go to Ephesians, and this is where it's going to really get into where I've been wanting to go and take you. Ephesians, and Ephesians is a road map of the heavenlies, my Lord. Oh yes, uh, Ephesians, a road map of the heavenlies. We need to expose and destroy Satan's scheme with the truth of God's word, and we definitely need to do that. We need to do that. A good way to start is by taking a close look at the book of Ephesians. And he said he chosen Ephesians for three major reasons. Number one, it is the handbook on spiritual warfare of the New Testament. It contains more power words connected to warfare in quote, the heavenlies, end quote, than any other book in the Bible. That is probably because it was written to a church where the new believers needed special help in combating and penetrating the world of evil, supernaturalism, that dominated Hellenistic and Ephesian society. It was serious. Motion detected yes. at the front door. Second, he said he chose Ephesians because it is a favorite of both traditional evangelicals and charismatics. Because unity is essential for effective evangelism, a solid middle ground must be found on which Christians can talk and walk and work together. Traditional evangelicals consider Ephesians the finest grain of wood from which to carve out the doctrine of the church because the epistle dwells heavily, heavily, heavily on the nature and the function of the church. It is also a favorite with Pentecostals and Charismatics, especially chapter 6, which includes extensive teaching regarding God's armor and also direct references to spiritual warfare. And finally, the third reason that he chose Ephesians is this epistle was addressed to a church that succeeded in reaching an entire city for Christ. It was an accomplishment 
that took place in the context of open, tangible, dramatic spiritual warfare under the watchful eye of Paul, the theologian, assuring us that no violation of essential doctrine would take place. And we can see that in Acts the 19th chapter, the 11th through 20th verses, then Ephesians the 6th chapter, the 10th through the 20th verses. Now much of the contemporary talk about city taking, territorial spirits, spiritual warfare, and so on, is based on Paul's teachings in this epistle. Okay, now our next section here is God's Dilemma. God's Dilemma. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul describes a sinister character whom he calls the Prince of the Power of the Air. And that's Ephesians, the second chapter, the second verse. Don't you feel it getting deep now? Deeper, I should say. Motion detected at the front door. Before Christ's death and resurrection, this princely being had a jurisdiction or authority to govern in the heavenly places. He is called a prince, which describes his rank of the power of the air, which explains his area of domain. Paul's teachings in Ephesians about the believers and the church's warfare with Satan and the powers, or demons, hierarchy, is complex and confusing for those of us who live in a totally different socio-cultural, spiritual context. And he goes on to tell us, he said, I will attempt to simplify the subject by using word pictures with diagrams. And so if you could happen to find this book, I would recommend it, okay? Their weakness is that they are too literal. They attempt to describe invisible actions and beings using human word pictures and diagrams. Their strength is that they can help us visualize the invisible so we can understand what has occurred and is occurring in the heavenlies. Oh my goodness, now we go to the cosmic grave. The center of Satan's jurisdiction appears to be what he, the writer, calls a cosmic grave in which every human being ever born, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has been entombed. Isn't it? Oh my Lord. I did tell you that it's going to get really deep in here. That's what I like about it. All who live outside of Christ are dead and entombed. E-N-T-O-M-B-E-D, okay? Instead of dirt, 
Satan uses sins and trespasses to bury his captives who are described as children of wrath. W-R-A-T-H, okay? You can see that in Ephesians, the second chapter and the third verse. They are all, they are all dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And that scripture is, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And we definitely want to be delivered from that, don't we? And we have been, if you've accepted Jesus Christ after repenting of your sins and accepted him as your personal Savior, you're on the right road now. And that's what's so important, so important. Now, drawing from other passages in the Bible, it is safe to assume that the gates of hell, in Matthew 16, chapter and the 18th verse, which I reinterpret to fit my word picture, kept a tight lid on the cosmic grave and that prior to Jesus' resurrection, the padlock of death kept those gates secured. My goodness. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, the padlock of death kept those gates secure, talking about the gates of hell. And Hebrews, the second chapter, the 14th and the 15th verses, and Revelation uh, chapter 1 and 18 is good reference for that, okay? Now, the whole picture talking about this diagram here that I'm looking at is the epitome of despair. Scores of people eternally buried, rotting in their own sins and trespasses and programmed to follow the course of an evil master. And oh yes, but there is light. There's always light. There's always light. However, God loves that lost world. You hear? This is the light. John 3.16 the specific focus of his love is on the masses of humanity suffering in that cosmic grave under the dictatorship of the prince of the power of the air. In fact, God loves them so much that he is willing to pay the highest price, the life, the death, the blood of his son. And we can read John 3, verse 16 and 17, and then 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. So God's interest in lost sinners presents him with a twofold dilemma. First, how can he, a holy God, bring to himself sinners? children of wrath and disobedience who are programmed to follow this evil prince. 
Second, how can he rescue them from a cosmic grave that is legally under someone else's jurisdiction? God has the power to do it, but his power never violates the holiness of his character. Oh, this is so good when I read it the first time. Ah, it was just as good as it is now. God has the power, okay? He has the power to rescue from a cosmic grave, okay? But it says that he has the power to do it, but his power never violates the holiness of his character. Prior to Jesus' death, if God would have intervened directly, Satan could have accused God of trespassing because the kingdom of the earth and their glory had been given to him. And here we will read in Luke the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. So now you got it, didn't you? Okay. Now we're going to talk about the cosmic checkmate. I'm telling you, I am really enjoying this going over this again. The cosmic checkmate. The answer to this dilemma, we're talking about God's dilemma, okay? The answer to this dilemma is found in what unfolds alongside each mention of the heavenlies in the rest of the epistle of Ephesians. Five times the term heavenly places is used in Ephesians. The first time it has to do with the Father, and we can see that in Ephesians, the first chapter and the third verse. The second time with Jesus, Ephesians, the first chapter, the 20th and the 21st verses. The third with the church, Ephesians 2 and 6, chapter 2, verse 6. The fourth with the principalities and powers, Ephesians 3, verse 10. And the last time with the struggle between the church and those principalities and powers. And so we can see that in Ephesians, the 6th chapter, the 10th through the 12th verses. If we imagine the conflict between God and the devil for the salvation of men in terms of a chess game, each one of the five reference to, references to the heavenly places mentioned represents a move by God that eventually leads to cosmic checkmate. Checkmate is from a Persian word meaning to trap a ruler so that he cannot escape. It is used in the game of chess to trap the opponent king and thus win the game. My, my, my. Now we're going to the first move. And I have played chess only once in my life. And my grandson, Nicholas, taught me and talked me through that game that we played together against each other. So I kind of 
a teeny weeny 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 bit. <laughs> kind of see this, just a teeny weeny 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 bit, okay? First move. God seeded the heavenly places with all kinds of spiritual blessings for the benefit of the captives in anticipation of their liberation. And you know God knows all. He's already seeing everything that's going on forever. He's always seen it from whenever our beginning is. And he'll see it until, until we get to the end. With him, there is no beginning and there is no end. Okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. God seated the formerly dark heavenlies with the bright lights and spiritual blessings he prepared before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4, for those who would believe in Christ. We could say that, like seeds buried in the ground under the winter snow, God's blessings for the church to be were scattered all over the heavenly places before the foundation of the world in anticipation of the rising of the sun in of justice who would thaw the ground and cause those seeds to sprout. Unknown to Satan, his kingdom had already been invaded in the eternal sovereign plan of God. See, <laughs> Didn't I tell you? It's getting better and better. Okay. My goodness. I want to... Unknown to Satan. I have to read this again. His kingdom had already been invaded in the eternal sovereign plan of God. See, God already had it worked out. He already had it worked out. The second move in this game of chess if you want to call it God applied a one-two punch by sending Jesus first to the lowest parts of Satan's kingdom and we can see that in Ephesians the fourth chapter the ninth verse and then raising Jesus to the highest place in the heavenly places Ephesians 4 verse 8 and then uh, one Chapter 1, then 18 through 22. So, speaking figuratively, the first punch deposited Jesus' feet at the bottom of the grave and confined the prince of the power of the air, along with his principalities and powers, under the feet of Jesus. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. And I must tell you these these uh, verses in the Bible, okay? Look in Ephesians, the first chapter, the 22nd verse. Then look at 1 Peter, the third chapter, and the 22nd verse, okay? Now, the second punch placed Jesus in the highest possible place in the heavenly places at the right hand of God and established him as head of the church. Ephesians, the first chapter, the 18th through the 22nd verses. 
also on the way out of the grave listen to this oh my goodness Jesus took with him the keys of Hades and death thus eliminating the effectiveness of the padlock that formerly secured the gate of hell my goodness now Ephesians 4 verse 8 Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 and Revelation 1 verse 18 my goodness <laughs> talking about that one-two punch okay oh my goodness so what do we see as a result of God's one-two punch figuratively speaking Jesus' feet are in the lowest part of the heavenly places and his head in the highest. His head and his feet are in position, so to speak. So what is still missing? His body. This leads us to the third move described in Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 10. Oh my goodness, this is so good. This is so good. Oh my goodness. Now, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Those are these, excuse me please, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church that's Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and the ninth verse, and then the first chapter, the 18th through the 22nd verses. Now we get to the third move. My God. Figuratively, figure, <laughs> I'm messing with this word. Figuratively speaking, God now proceeded to effect the largest transfer of building material in the entire history of the universe. He did it by moving human beings, talking about sinners, from Satan's grave into the heavenly places where he seated them as saints there with Jesus. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Ephesians 2 verse 6. The now vulnerable and unsecured gates of hell could not prevail against God's command. Oh my goodness. 
And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and then chapter 2, verse 6. Oh my God. God is so good to us, isn't he? He is so good to us. From among those whom we transferred, Paul later tells us that he appointed some to be apostles, some to be prophets, others to be evangelists, and still others pastor teachers. That's Ephesians the fourth chapter and the eleventh verse. He did this for the purpose of building up the body of Christ until it has reached the full measure of Christ. And uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Feeling the all in all, mentioned in Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, reflects the fullness of Christ in the church as it occupies the heavenlies, thus displacing the prince of the power of the air and his underlings from their control in the heavenlies. They are now confined in subjection under Jesus' feet. And that proof is Ephesians, the first chapter, and the 22nd verse. This is a powerful metaphor of Christ's absolute lordship over all things visible and invisible. Oh my God, he is so good. Now the picture is complete. Showing Jesus' feet at the lowest part of what used to be Satan's domain his head at the highest part, and his body, the church, in between those two. My, my, my. Now we're going to the fourth move. God established the church in the heavenly places as both an example and a witness to the principalities and powers. God did this in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3, verse 10. The church is an example of the principalities and power. And there's an S on there, okay? The church is an example of the principalities and powers. An example of what? Of God's grace, a major theme of Ephesians. And there are so many scriptures here. Ephesians, the first chapter, the second, sixth, and seventh verses. The second chapter, the fifth, seventh, and eighth verses. The third chapter, the second, seventh, and eighth verses. The fourth chapter, the seventh and the twenty-ninth verse. And the sixth chapter, and the 24th verse. And the reason I'm doing all these scriptures is because it's proof that what is written here 
is true. Okay? Grace is something Satan cannot relate to because he is absolutely outside of its scope. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, Satan was relying on the letter of the law for a technical victory. He knew he could not touch Jesus himself on account of his sinlessness, but he was counting on being able to continue to keep mankind inside his cosmic grave on account of its sinfulness. To this effect, he was using the act of the decrees, the law of God that mankind had violated, as his claim of authority over his captives. And you can see that in Colossians, the second chapter, the 15th verse. He was counting on the fact that God's law declared that the soul that sins must also die. And that's in Ezekiel 18th chapter and the fourth verse. However, Satan overlooked the mystery that was hidden in Christ, a mystery called grace that came to light when Jesus' body was pierced. Grace allows God to grant unmerited favor without violating his holiness on account of Christ's expiatory sacrifice. When Christ's body was lanced and his blood shed, a new dispensation began, the dispensation of grace. In absolute perplexity, Satan watched Jesus open a new way of access for man to the Father, not on the basis of man's own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Now God has put men and women, saved by grace, on display in the heavenly places as an example of that grace to Satan and his underlings. God's strategy consisted of sending Jesus on a rescue mission to set the captives free and then to, to turn them into well-trained soldiers to fight their former master for the souls of those still held captive. The church, made up of the redeemed, now turned spiritual commandos, is built on the rock of Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed them, the son of the living God. Against this combination, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Matthew 16, chapter the 18th verse. Finally, According to Ephesians 3, verse 10, the church has an active role of making known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God is what we have just discovered, God's plan of salvation through the grace of Christ. 
The church makes it known both by its example and also through the word of its testimony spoken into the spirit world, declaring to the powers of their defeat by Christ and our authority in his name to claim lost souls for the kingdom of God. Oh, my Lord, God, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. Now we're going to the fifth move. Ephesians 6, verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And that's in the New International Version. In four moves, God has deprived Satan of his rightful control of the heavens by making Christ the fullness of all in all. In the church, as it occupies the heavenly places, God has displaced Satan and his hosts and confined them under the feet of Jesus. The church has now been placed as potentially in control of the heavenly places once ruled by the prince of the power of the air. But the church must engage and defeat the enemy to retake the heavens in the name of her Lord so that the eyes of those still being held captive by Satan will be opened. Though Satan and his evil powers have already been defeated by Christ, they have not yet been abolished. And the example is, meaning, cast into the lake of fire, okay? They are allowed to hold mankind captive until God's liberating army, the church, invades Satan's kingdom rescuing men and women from bondage. This is the warfare so vividly described by Paul in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20. Even though the focus of Ephesians 6 10 through 18 is usually interpreted as more defensive than offensive, this warfare is both defensive and offensive, as we will soon see. We are to stand firm against the schemes of our enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 14a. Because Satan attacks the church now, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, he's still at it. He is constantly attacking the church. And we can see that proof in Ephesians, the second chapter, and the sixth verse. How does he do it? To answer this question, we must understand that in this picture of the church in the heavenlies, there are two constants and one variable. So look in your mind, okay? Two constants and one variable. The first constant is Jesus' position of authority over Satan and his demons. They are on his feet, and he is far above them, and every name 
of this age and of the age to come. This can never change. In fact, the expression for above used in Ephesians 1 verse 21 in the Greek implies that Jesus is so high in the heavenlies that it is absolutely impossible for his enemies to bridge that gap. The other constant is Jesus' position of authority at the right hand of God in the highest point of the heavenly places. Nothing can ever alter that. He is there awaiting, excuse me, he is there waiting until all his enemies are finally placed as a footstool under his feet. Paul declares elsewhere that he is also there to intercede for the church. We, the scriptures are Acts 2, verses 34 and 35, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 28, Hebrews 1, verse 13, and then chapter 10, verse 13. And I'm going to stay under an hour. I plan to go over an hour with this, okay? The only variable is the position of the church. This side of this. The demonic forces as it confronts Satan and his forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 chapter 12 verse. Satan cannot challenge Jesus' authority over him, and thus he must remain under his feet. I will say that again. Satan cannot challenge Jesus' authority over him, and thus he must remain under his feet. Likewise, he cannot question God's decision to place Jesus in the highest place, interceding for the church. So what option is left open to him? To challenge the position of the church in the heavenly places, since the church has been set up as an example and a witness to him and his hosts. You can see that in Ephesians 3 verse 10. This is where Satan concentrates his attack. You hear me? This is where he concentrates his attack on the only variable element in the equation. Why would Jesus constantly intercede before God for the church unless such intercession is directly related to the church's struggle against Satan? God the Father does not need Jesus to remind him of what his shed blood accomplished. Jesus' intercession has to do with the warfare between the church and Satan. And I'm going to stop right there. And when I start again in part three, I will start with Satan's counter attack. This is Greater Gospel Temple and Inspiration of God Ministries right here on the World Wide Web.
and I really am thankful to God for this podcast, this avenue to get more information about the greatness of God. He is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And before I close out, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have not taken the opportunity, or if you know someone who has not taken the opportunity to repent and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, or whoever might need to repent and accept Jesus Christ as the personal Savior. All you have to do is repeat after me, Dear God, I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. In the name of Jesus, and I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Amen. And if you did that, or if you related to someone and they did that, it's a done deal. You are saved now. Now, if you're not affiliated with a church that has a sanctified leader that is teaching the true word of God, then God will guide you if you ask Him to want to guide someone to you to guide you to it. And I would like to say the Greater Gospel Temple is available. You can reach me at 469-629-9543 GG2Church66 at yahoo.com I love you Enjoy your day, night, evening, whichever it may be. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves all of us. And don't ever, ever forget that. Never, ever think that your situation is hopeless. Whatever comes up, depend on God. He sees you. He hears you. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. So repent if you make a mistake. If you mess up, repent and get up and continue this fight for your soul. I love you. Let me hear from you.